All right, good morning, guys. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll need one today, and there are some on the, the front table right over there, so feel free to, to grab those. Um, if, uh, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, um, snag one, take it with you. We'd love to invest that into you. We, uh, we are a, a church that desperately believes the Bible, and uh, so that's one of the things that if you're, if you're kind of new, um, uh, you can just expect that we are going to be teaching through the Bible, uh, proclaiming God's story, and uh, so we'll be going through, going through that. Today, we're going to be going through a, a ton of different verses, and we won't be hitting a lot of them in depth um, like we will when we hit Ecclesiastes in a couple of weeks, um, but we'll be, we'll be all over uh, Old Testament and New Testament. We're, uh, we're in the, the middle of um, uh, a series, in fact, we're wrapping, wrapping it up today, called Metaphors. And uh, in, this, in this series, uh, we've talked about um, three different metaphors so far that talk, that talk about Jesus, but also connect us to this place. We talked about God being our rock and uh, how this place is on a rock. We talked about God being our, our spring and our fountain and talking about the big spring uh, right over here. Uh, we talked about um, God being our treasure and really the real bank uh, that we should, we should go to to find any kind of peace or put all of our securities in. And uh, so those first three weeks talked about Jesus. Today, we're going to be talking about Jesus' mission uh, as we talk about um, uh, the city. And uh, Jesus' mission is to seek and to save those that are lost. Okay, So, in fact, I get you guys to help me out with that. Um, Jesus' mission, you guys say, to seek and save the lost. That's right. That's, that's Jesus' mission. Uh, that's why he came. And so what he does is he, he's come, and he's still coming, and he seeks those that are lost, and he brings them into his family. And so that's a metaphor we're not talking about today. We're not unpacking that one, but that he creates a family, a family of God. Um, and he forms what we also know as the church, and that's the, the big family, you may say, well, Dave, that's the, the church's building you go to, right? No, uh, a, a church is not a building. Um, at, well, it is. Uh, it is a building. Um, it's okay to call a building a church, but that's not the primary um, usage of what a church is. Um, some people say, well, church is the service that you go to. It's like, well, okay, that's all right. If you, you maybe use that vernacular here in the Bible Belt, uh, you invite someone to church, that's fine. Go ahead, invite people. Just use, just use the vernacular. Invite people uh, to, to Jesus. Invite them to come with you as, as we worship Jesus. Um, but we're also known as a city, and there's several words that are used in Scripture that, um, that give us that term, city, and, it, and we go all over the place with it. Um, but I want to start where I've been starting each, each week, which is giving you just a little bit more of the historical context of either this bank or the city that we're in. Um, uh, we've, we've brought you up to speed in, in a lot of things, and, and I want to give a, a, a few acknowledgments. A lot of the information I've gotten was from this doctoral thesis by a guy by the name of Robert Weeks uh, that he presented to a seminary um, down in Florida. Um, uh, but this dissertation, uh, it's actually called an an investigation of the spiritual strongholds operating in Huntsville, Alabama. It was in May 1995, and the, the dude just did tons of historical research, and part of it was just to get some inclinations of, you know, what, what really has been going on spiritually, 
since the Indians uh, to now. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating read. Um, you have to go to the historical section of the library. You can't even check it out. You have to go there, sit down with it, and, uh, and read it, and then you've got to keep it there. But you can do that if you want. Uh, I, as you can imagine, also got some information from Chamber of Commerce, from HuntsvilleCity.org, and uh, Wikipedia, of course, right? Everybody goes to Wikipedia. Um, so a little bit about Huntsville as a city. Um, 1789, the Tennessee Land Company purchased 3.5 million acres of land from the state of Georgia. This was called the Yazoo Sale. Uh, it included the present-day Madison County, and they paid $46,805 for 3.5 million acres back then. There was a second Yazoo Sale between 1795 and uh, 1796, where they sold the rest of what's currently known as North Alabama. Um, there was tons of bribery that took place during that time, and it became known as the Great Yazoo Fraud. Anybody ever heard that? Uh, or in, in your state of Alabama, some of the kids, they'll, they'll learn about that uh, in grade school. Um, the land companies ended up selling land at about a dollar an acre back then. But uh, e when they did this, they said it was done illegally, and eventually all that land that was sold, or most of it, was ceded back to the federal government. And so it was in the hands of Georgia, then it was in the hands of Tennessee Land Company, then it got back in the hands of the United States, um, uh, the federal government. So Huntsville was settled in 1805, so we just had our bicentennial uh, a few years back, six years ago. And we've talked about this already, but John Hunt was the one in 1805 that that built a cabin right here, real close to where we're sitting right now, probably down by the water. It could have been on, on the rock. We're not sure exactly where it was. Um, as we talked about before, Samuel Davis uh, was a guy from Georgia that came in and started building a cabin, and when he, he got some things going, went back to Georgia somewhere in the Georgia Territory to get his family. When he came back, John Hunt had come moved in to what he'd already moved, started in his cabin, finished it up, and when, uh, when Davis got back, he was fully in the cabin with his family, so Davis was out of luck, all right? Um, so Hunt came in, squatted, and built. Um, more, more pioneer families came in um, uh, in this very fertile area, and uh, as we talked about, they were all squatters. Nobody had legal right to it. Now, later on, when they started selling it off, they had the opportunity to purchase land. Uh, some of them did. Some of them were not able to afford it because uh, the land inflated uh, quickly. Um, in 1808, Robert Williams was territorial government governor, and, uh, and he issued a proclamation, and he created the county of Madison. And that was after James Madison, who had just been elected to the presidency six days earlier. All right? The 1809 census stated the county at that point had 353 heads of families, 1,150 free white males, 723 white females, 332 slaves. And then the sale of the land began in August 1809 in Nashville. Um, again, the squatters were allowed to buy, but only about 14% of those who had been squatting were able to buy at that point. Leroy Pope, William Anderson, James Jackson... They came in uh, from the Virginia area and North and the Carolina areas, and they bought up a lot of lands. Uh, you've probably heard about Pope. Um, as I said, John Hunt failed to register his land, and so 
he was not able to stay. Um, uh, before 1809 was over, Pope established an area. Uh, he, he gave some of the property to this, to this township that was, that was being birthed, uh, and he called it Twickenham. Uh, now, that's after, that was after his cousin, Alexander Pope, uh, who was a British author, uh, and he's the one who's, who's known as uh, translating the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer's uh, uh, great classics into English. That's what his fame, uh, his name, his claim to fame was, and Leroy Pope wanted to connect with his cousin, uh, and his cousin lived in an area called Twickenham, so he called it Twickenham. Now, what took place around 1811 was uh, there was so, so much disgust over the British uh, that the people around here, they said, we will not be known as a British, as a British town, it's, which is now part of London, by the way, um, but uh, we want to be known as Huntsville after the guy that we say was the real, uh, the real founder of our city. All right, Huntsville became the first capital of uh, the state of Alabama. Then it was moved uh, to Ca- to Cahaba, and then on to Montgomery. Um, a little bit more history, just quickly. Um, uh, that grew through the 19th century through cotton and through land sales. Uh, during the Great Depression um, in the early 20th century, Huntsville became known as the watercress capital of the world. Anybody else know that? In fact, there's a building that's right over here that's got watercress on it. I don't know if it has anything to do with it. I imagine it does. Um, I don't know where everybody grew their watercress. Does anybody know in here? Um, so, okay. Anyway, watercress capital of the world during the Great Depression because everything else uh, was bottoming out. All right. So bringing you up to speed, in the 40s, they established the Huntsville Arsenal and the Redstone Ordnance Plant. In the 50s, that's when they brought Werner von Braun and his team of scientists from Germany to build rockets. Also in the 60s, NASA was birthed and the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center was developed. Um, And uh, Cummings Research Park was developed in the 60s as well. Uh, Research Park, how many of you guys have some kind of connection to Research Park? How many of y'all work out there or have some kind of connection? Okay. Uh, it is the second largest research park in the nation. It's the fourth largest research park in the world. Um, now uh, we've, we've seen rise to other things other than just being known as Rocket City. you got the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, um, known, for their, known for their genetic research and development here. Um, I believe that God has a plan for Huntsville, Alabama. He's already, he's already impacted the world in, in some, some different ways, but I believe that there's going to be breakthroughs that take place in our city that are going to affect the world. I believe that the more technological, more genetic, more humanitarian, who knows, sitting in our, our church, sitting in our city right now, there may be somebody that they're the ones that, that have the breakthrough for cancer, or may, they may be the ones that really have that final breakthrough to try to... Um, to develop a whole new way of desalinization to try to get to try to get fresh water to those on coastlines or maybe fresh water and, and uh, filters. Who, who knows what's going to happen? I believe, though, God has got a plan, and He's going to do that. Um, cities have been the centers of culture and technology for thousands of years, and God has been strategically placing His people right in the middle of it. Some of the greatest innovators and inventors throughout the millennia have been... Christians, and it's not just been then, but, but uh, God's been the one that's been in the middle of it. 
Um, God has been placing people within cities to take the great news of Jesus Christ to them. And um, Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, was one of the greatest Western thinkers and philosophers, but he was also one of the greatest pastors and, and a bishop uh, in the early church. And um, he, was, he lived in the 5th the century, and there was, that was the time in which Rome fell. It collapsed. And of course, Constantine had been the one that had, had uh, initiated for Christianity to be the, the, the religion of Rome officially, and so there were many that said the reason Rome has fallen is because of Christians. If we'd stuck with our paganism, we would not have fallen. And so they're pointing to it, and, and oppression, all kinds of horrible things started to happen as a result of this. Augustine, during that time, wrote one of his greatest works called The City of God. And I highly recommend it that you take a look to see about it, because in it, he wrote something that is very relevant today. And in a, in a day that, I, I mean, I think politics are, are relevant. Uh, I think it's important uh, to, to, to know what's going on in your city or your, your state and, and your nation. I think it's important to be a part of it. But do not, do not put your hope in politics. Do not put your faith in any kind of a political leader. In fact, don't even put your faith in any kind of a spiritual leader like, like me. Put your faith only in Jesus Christ. And that's what Augustine was saying. He said, look, in the middle of all of this, there's one king. There is one emperor, and that's God and God alone. And so he talked about the city of God existing within the city of man. And so we're in Huntsville, the city. We call this the city of, of man, and God wants to continue to build the city of God within the city of man. People who have an allegiance to Jesus before an allegiance to anyone else. And I'm not saying that we buck the system. I'm not saying that you break all the laws and say, well, Jesus is my king, so I don't care what my authorities say. We're not saying that. Romans 13 speaks to that of how important it is that you, that you um, listen to your authorities that are over you, that they are actually God's appointed ministers over you. Now, that, that does not mean that everything that a government official does is good, uh, but he says that trust that the Lord is the one that's, that's behind, behind these things. Um, but in all of that, he's saying, look, don't trust, don't put your hope and your faith in your culture, in your city, or in your nation. Put it in, in God alone. Christianity um, grew through cities. Um, there's a historian that, that Tim Keller, a pastor out of Manhattan, uh, has turned me on to. Uh, his name's Rodney Stark. In fact, uh, if any of y'all want, you know, you'd like to do more research, uh, this book is called Cities of God by Rodney Stark, Cities of God, the real story of how Christianity became an urban movement and conquered Rome. Um, tremendous read, uh, as well as his other books um, on, on, on history, history of the world. And uh, Keller pointed out uh, something from Stark um, he, uh, in one of his books, how uh, during the Black Plague that the pagans... Um, were ones that when a, a family member, even a wife or a child, when they contracted the Black Plague, they would put them out or maybe they would just abandon them and leave them and, and they would move out of town, but they would just leave them to die. But the Christians, they not only cared for one another, but they cared for those that would be un, unbelievers, non-Christians. They would go and they would, for most of them, it's that they would they would. They would be a blessing to them. They'd help, they'd help 
clean them, they help feed them to where they would, they would die with a decency. They die with somebody caring for them. And so there's many people that as they were on their way out, as they were dying with the Black Plague, said, I want to believe in what you believe in. I want to believe in this Jesus that makes you love me even though I've given you now the Black Plague. There were many Christians during that time that they died as a result of loving their city, of loving the neighbors that God had around them. And what, you know, what would happen if there was something like that, a, a huge, huge plague hit within Huntsville, Alabama and, and started spreading all over our nation? You know, would, would Christians rise up and say, you know what, God, I, I trust you enough to know that my life's not my own anyway. And so, God, I gladly give it for your glory, for people that even if they never trust in you, God, I, I give my life for them. You know why we do that? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus gave his life for those that were were his enemies, those that didn't believe like him. And that's what it means to really love a city. God loves cities. God loves people. I mean, one of the greatest verses uh, that talks about this, of God's global love is is John 3.16. God so loved the world. That's people outside of just Judaism, outside of just a local area. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, would have an everlasting life, have, have eternal life. That's the love of a God for a city. That's the love of God for a neighborhood. That's the love of God for a world for all of the years. So let's talk a little bit more about um, city and its use in the Bible. Um, one of the first usages is talking about Jerusalem, talking about it as the city of God. Um, Daniel 9, verses 18 to 19 said, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Talking about Jerusalem. Talking about the city in which it was the city of David. It was the city in which the Messiah was supposed to, to come in and through there, through that city. It was the city of God. Heaven is also described as a city. Not just the heaven later that's going to come. We'll come to that in a second. But heaven as it exists right now. And this is, this is kind of strange for me. Um, I don't know if you, if you guys ever just try to imagine heaven and to think what it, what it means. And if, if, if you were raised in a Christian subculture, then your thoughts may be somewhat tainted by thinking about um, streets of gold and a per, pearly gates. Uh, and, um, and if you're tainted just by, by culture, which, which is most of us, you might think of heaven as well. It's just, I don't know, it's just kind of... You're, a, you're an angel, I guess, and you got a harp, and, and uh, you're just on, on these clouds there. And, and that's, that's not an accurate description of what, what heaven is. Heaven is an actual place. Um, I don't know what kind of dimension the real heaven exists, but it is a real place that exists somewhere because the real God exists. Uh, and, and, and He has a, a throne room that's described, uh, whether literal or or allegorical, there's still, there's some place that God exists. There's some place in which the, the collective 
family of God, after they die, they're, they're there and they're with God. There is a place called, called heaven, and it's called a, a city of, of God. Psalm 46, 4-11 through 11 talks about this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah, which means pause and consider all this. And so there's a very real God that exists in a very real place called heaven. Heaven is also a future place. Uh, Revelations 21, uh, 1 through 5 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now hold on just a second. This means that not only, not only uh, is Jesus coming back someday, because he came a first time. That was called uh, the Advent, the Advent of Christ. And, and, and when we get into the Christmas season, if you're not familiar with it, Advent just means coming. And we're celebrating the first coming of Jesus. But the, if you say that there's a first coming, that just begs the question. It's like, well, that means somebody, I guess, is coming a second time. Yes, He is. Jesus is coming back. Because He came to bring hope for this world in, in, in its brokenness, but He didn't finish the healing of the brokenness of this world. He just brought Himself as the solution. With His death, His burial, His resurrection from the dead. That's what brings us hope and helps us to become not only broken people, but as changed people that are now in the family of God. But that's not the end. That's not the, the end of the great news. The great news is that someday Jesus is coming back and He's not going to leave it this way. You know, you think about just some of the horrific things that are going on in this world. I mean, there's, they, they say that there's more slave trading going on in our world right now than has ever been. And part of that is sexual slavery. And it's just unbelievable um, what's happening outside of our nation and even inside our nation. And it's the kind of thing that you hear about it and you say, God, would you just come? Would you come? There's no accident that the very last verses that are in the Bible, in Revelation, it says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why? Because this world stinks. It's so broken that we need to be calling out, God, come and finish it. Come and finish this world, God. And He is. Someday He's going to come. He's not going to leave it in this broken state. Someday He's going to come. All wickedness, all rebellion, all evil will be put away. It will be punished forever and ever. All those who say, Jesus, I don't want you. I can do it myself. I don't need a Savior. I'm doing just fine. God's going to say, have it your way for all eternity. You can't have me. You can't have anything that I've got. You can't have any of my fruit, my love, my joy, my peace. Forever and ever, have it your way. Forever and ever. That's what's going to happen to those. And, but, and, and, and so all wickedness, all rebellion will be put away. And God, it, it says that this, it's a new heavens and a new earth. And, and I don't know if that means the entire universe 
He's going to wipe it away like it's a, a grease board and just start over if it's just this world. I don't know. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know He's going to, he's going to make it new. It's going to be completely new. This, just follow the rest, of, the rest of the Scripture there. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now that, that's worth chewing on at lunch today. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will, God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Some of us, we need to write those words down and say, God, that's what's coming someday. Heaven's coming someday. And yet, we don't just need heaven coming someday. We need Jesus and His kingdom right now. We can't just bury our heads in the sand and just say, I don't want to hear about all the brokenness. I don't want to hear about all the pain. I don't want to watch the news because I just want to say, God, come on, and I'm just going to ignore it all until Jesus comes back. That is not Christianity. Christianity says there is tons of injustice that's going on in this world, and God came because He is a gracious and merciful God. And we ask the questions like, God, why do you allow all these things? What are, you, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? And he says, I'm sending my people. That's what he's doing about it. So we have to ask ourselves, like, God, am, am I living as a sent person? Are we living as a sent people? At the level of a city, I mean, what, what is God? I mean, I, I truly think we should dream and say, God, what, do, what might you be up, up to in our city to bring blessing all over this world? I think we need to ask ourselves, God, what might you be doing in the Christians in a city? Not just our church, but all over. God, what is it that you're up to that you want to accomplish through the Christians all over a city? We should be praying and saying, God, what is it that you want to do specifically through Sojourn Church? Um, because God positions local churches all over in a city. And, and Jesus is, is the pinnacle of it all. It's all about Him. He's the prize. And yet, God has them placed in certain places in the city where they gather and where they scatter for specific reasons. A church, a, a congregation can't do everything. And some churches try. And, and, and you, get, you, get, you get average at everything instead of being highly effective in a few things. And that's what we're asking God. Help us. And from the beginning, I, this, the, the vision was to be... A, be simple, be biblical, but be as simple as possible so that we can be highly effective as a congregation and as a church. And so that means, just by the way, I mean, there's going to be sometimes that, that we have ideas and that, of things, well, we do this, or, well, this church does this and this and, and, and this, and, and, and you, can, you can just say, well, all these churches do all these different things, and if we're to be a good church, we'll do all these things. And, and, and we're, we're collectively going to say, no, no, we, we can't. We can't do all these things. In fact, we can cheer other congregations on and say, man, you go and, and, and bring justice in that way and, 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 and be Jesus in that way. But we're going to say, God, we, we have to be faithful with, with what you've called us to be as well. 
city of God um, is not only heaven now, and it's not only a future place uh, that God's going to bring here, but it's also an allegiance now as a city of God, as the people, an allegiance, that we're an alternate community with King Jesus reigning over His kingdom. Psalm 145, 1-9 speaks to this. It says, I will extol you. That just means exalt. That means lift you high. See, that word just means, man, I, I praise you. I, I, you know, I, I see you as being the one that's high, high and lifted up. I extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. That doesn't mean we don't search. It means you keep searching and keep searching and never find the end of it. His greatness. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth your, the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. See, it's saying in the midst of this broken world, we're saying everybody, go to Jesus. He's the King. He's the greatest. We're weak. We can accomplish nothing. But God can accomplish so much. And we declare Him. We declare Him. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that is made. I mean, do you just see, can you just see the posture of humility, of bowing, and of praise before Him? And I pray that God will continue to mold this church into being a submissive church to Jesus. That we bow our hearts, we bow our minds, bow your bodies before God and just say, God, I am not king. You are. The phrase city of God can also refer to uh, not just an, an allegiance now, but to a people now as a city on a hill. Matthew five fourteen to 16 talks about this. Jesus was speaking. He said, you, I'm talking about, if, and if you're in here, you're a Christian. And, and by the way, when we, we do communion every, every week here, and, and communion is for those who believe, those who say, I, be, I, I be, not only believe in Jesus, but I've surrendered to Jesus. And so you, it doesn't matter if you're a, a member of this church or not, that together we, we're like shouting. When we take, this, take the bread, and in, it's intention. You take this cracker, this, uh, it's matzah is what it is, and, and you dip it either in the juice or the wine, and when you do that, it's like you're yelling out. It's like you're extolling God, exalting Him. You're lifting up and say, hey, everybody, Jesus is King. Everybody, Jesus died for us. Hey, everybody, Jesus was broken for us. Everybody, Jesus' blood was poured out for us. That's what we do. He's saying you, as Christians, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I know you guys have seen this uh, illustration before probably. I'm going to give it to you again in kind of an updated manner. Um, 
I've got a great app. It's called the Flashlight, and uh, it's actually pretty, uh, pretty bright, especially if it's dark. And uh, if I can get it to work here, all right. So it's not very bright in here. However, it's it's like this: it's saying, "Look, I got a light. This light, if, if it's dark in here, we're going to be able to see." So the light is here, but as soon as I put it here, you have no idea that there's a light there. You have no idea, and what what Jesus was saying is, look, there is a light within you. And your objective is, is not to be opaque, but to be transparent. See, because we're the basket. It's not, it's not that you just kind of put a, put a basket over a light. You are the basket. You are the lampshade. You are... You're, and you decide whether you're going to be opaque, translucent, or transparent by your faith and your trust in yourself, by seeking glory and fame for yourself versus seeking your glory, the glory for God. And what, what I challenge you to do is that you would analyze. You say, God, would you, would you just kind of tell me today what, what it looks like in my life? Would you just tell me today, God, if I'm... If, if I'm blocking all the light, because the light is not me, the light is you, and, and it's, it's within me. If I'm a Christian, it's in you. The, the gospel's powerful, whether I even believe it or not. The gospel is powerful. Jesus is powerful. The Holy Spirit is powerful. But show me, God, am I being a little translucent to where somebody can see, you know what, it seems like there's a kind of a, a, a faded glow over there that I can't really see in the dark, but it's like I can tell something's over there in the darkness. Or if... If there's just this shining, bright thing, but no idea at all, versus, God, would you, would you change me into glass that's transparent for your light to blaze out, but also transparent for those that I'm in community with to see inside of me? It goes two ways. You can be opaque to Jesus, and you can be opaque to those that you're living life with. And God just says, open up. Open up so that the world can see me. But if they see me, that means they're also seeing you. And that's, that's some of the, the greatest um, encouragement to you is to know, look, it's not by trying to fool people, try to convince them that you've got it all together, but it's actually when you are completely transparent and just say, I'm an idiot and a fool sometimes. But God is great and awesome. And God says, when you do that, I am going to be able to shine out from you in tremendous ways because you're not pointing to yourself anymore. You're pointing to Jesus. You're pointing to the real light. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God's saying to us that when you when you are transparent before others and primarily when the light of Christ shines through, that just means, you know what, basically that means point to Jesus. When you're not pointing to you, when you're not pointing to your circumstances, you know, you're not pointing to what you've achieved and how good you are, it also means that you're not spending a lot of time pointing about how bad you are either. That's the flip side of it. Not about how good you are, not about how bad you are, it's about how great Jesus is. That's where we point. And as we do that, it says that people will not, they won't give glory to you and they won't pity you either. But they'll give glory 
to your Father who's in heaven. And lastly, the, con- the concept, the, the terms of, of being really being a, a city, God's love for a city, is that as a city of God within the city of man, that God has a mission, and that mission is transferred over, over to us. I'll read to you quickly from Luke 7, a little out of 7 and 8. In Luke 7, verse 47, it says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. We're jumping right in the middle, right in the middle of the end of a, of a story uh, where God did an amazing, Jesus did an amazing work and uh, ended up saying to her, verse 48, Your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with them began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Verse 1, Soon afterward he went, went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. All right? So Jesus loved these cities. He walked into these cities and he proclaimed himself. He went around, he healed people, and he went around forgiving their sins. And he ended up telling them, said, look, when they're forgiven much, they love much. And, and to, 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 to see what happens, look at the end of that chapter, Luke 8, 38, 39, what happens when God really touches a person's life. The man from whom the demons had, been, had, had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The point in just these parts of these stories was when you're forgiven of much, when you're healed of much, when you're free of much, you declare much. That, man, when somebody comes in and they're a Savior in your life, when somebody, if, somebody, if you're out there drowning in a pool or, or in, in the Gulf of Mexico and somebody rescues you, guess what you're going to be talking about next week at the water cooler? You're going to be talking about that guy. You're going to be talking about that, that woman that saved your butt. Because you couldn't do it. And they were gracious and they helped you and they, they saved you. The reason why I and you sometimes don't share is because we forget that we've been forgiven so much. We somehow get into a, maybe it's a subconscious thought that we're just like, I'm not really that bad. or It really wasn't that bad. I mean, God didn't have to move things that much. Now, we probably would never say that, but our actions speak otherwise. When you've been forgiven of much, you're grateful for much, and you declare much. You no longer spend the time pointing to your, to your greatness or pointing about how horrible you are or how horrible things are. You just, you just get transparent and just say, you know, well, I don't have it together, but let me just point you to Jesus. You point to Jesus. You end up like this man who'd been freed from demons. He says he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now that's where we just get to the finality of how God loves a city. Is he changes people and sends them right back into the broken city so that they can point to him. So my, my, my encouragement to you today 
Well, let me tell you what I'm not doing. I'm not here to, to bring a guilt trip to you just because maybe one or two of you are just like, man, I, I haven't spoken of Jesus to, to anyone in months or years. Here's my encouragement to you. Find out more about grace. Learn more about the gospel and what Jesus actually did for you. Give up even the thought that you had anything to do with your salvation, that you chose Him. It's like, well, man, finally, it's like, all right, God, you can be on my team. Give up all of that and just say, God, I'm just so grateful because you saved me, you changed me, and I give you all the glory for it. And as a result of that, I'm telling you, you just can't help but just to point to Him, to all those that are around you. At a very practical level, um, our challenge, and the, the verbiage we've been using lately is just, it's just saying, man, Christians are to be an invitational people. And so, at a practical level, here's just four ways to invite people. And it's first of all, to invite people to Jesus, first and foremost. If you don't do any of the other four, man, do the, do the other three, do that one. Just invite people to Jesus. But if you follow the way of Jesus and the way he invited people into his life, you'll follow that too. So, you invite people to Jesus, but you also in, invite people to your living room. And our, that metaphor, that verbiage we're using there is really just to describe that, that Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus developed a community of people, of believers. And so and invite those that are Christians deeper into your life. But also invite people to the kitchen table. And primarily that means hospitality. That means those that are unbelievers, friends that don't know Christ, uh, friends neighbors that are, that are around you that they don't believe in Christ, invite them into your kitchen. Have them over for dinner. And spend time with them. And, and get to know where they are. And just God's going to reveal, I, I need to be right there. Point to me now. Point to me right now. Challenge also to invite people right here on Sunday morning. Because if you're inviting them to your home, if you're inviting them to your discipleship group that you have, uh, that, that you're in, invite them here now as, as well. Um, I, I've gotten just some wonderful opportunities lately to meet and spend time with un, non-Christian friends. Some of them new, some of them old, and, and it's, it's just neat because a lot of them, they're like, they're like you know what, I'm, I'm, I don't know that I buy into the deity of Christ yet, but I really like com- the community. We, we need community. We need to be around other people. Guys, that's what that's what non-Christians think. They're like, even if they don't buy into your God right now, they'd like to be with you. So invite them into your life. Don't show yourself as the hope. Show Jesus as the hope. God, I pray that you, uh, you help us to... Uh,